Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. One, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight we're doing part two of our analysis of the General Conference talk from October of 2018 by Elder Dallin Oaks related to why he hates the gays. That may be overstating it, but basically I think that's the message that many people have come away from with this talk or come away with from this talk. Oh my gosh. Yes, it is six o'clock here in the morning, Radio Free Mormon time. So um, I wanted to say a couple of things before we start going into the second half of his talk here, Bill. The first is this. I've been talking to different friends about what it is that we're doing with Elder Oak's talk. One of the friends said, you know, how is it that this can be a 15 minute talk and you do two hours of podcasting about the talk and you're only halfway through Elder Oaks talk. And I thought that was a very, very good question. And I started thinking about it. And I started thinking that the reason why is because we're not just looking at what he's saying. We're looking also at the background behind what he's saying. And we are looking at what Elder Oaks is not saying. Because there's a ton of things that Elder Oaks is not saying. And when I thought about this, um, I was reminded of a an episode from the TV show Supernatural where I don't know if everybody's seen it. I'm way behind. It's like in season 13 now, and I'm up to season five. But in season five, there's this great episode where one of the characters meets an angel, and the angel's name is Zachariah. And in Supernatural, the angels are not necessarily good guys. But this angel, Zachariah, he dresses just like a Mormon bishop. He's got the suit. He's got the white shirt. He's got the tie. And he's totally pulled one over on this character and fooled him into thinking something is true when it's not. And when this character figures out that he's been duped, he looks at the angel and he says incredulously, you lied to me about everything. And the angel looks back at him and says, very matter of factly, we didn't lie to you. We just omitted certain truths to manipulate you. And when I saw that, I went bing. This is exactly what it is that the LDS Church does. And even Kate Holbrook in the broadcast with Quentin Cook that we talked about, about church history, she tries to frame it that way as well. And I've heard other people frame it that way. She said the church didn't lie to us. It just emphasized certain things, which is exactly what the angel on Supernatural is saying. We didn't lie to you. We just avoided certain truths 
to manipulate you. Well, it's all these things that Elder Oaks is avoiding saying that you and I are going into as well so that his effort to manipulate us into believing that his anti-gay, anti-transgender message is really a truth from God is not necessarily so. So that's the first thing. Do you have any comments about that, Bill? Uh, only that my wife and my daughters love Supernatural to the point where my daughters have hats and shirts that have sayings and quotes from the shows on them. Um, I'm too busy doing other things that uh, that I just can't get into that show. I've seen an episode or two. But again, uh, for those who like the show, know that the real household is overwhelmingly in favor of the show Supernatural. Okay, well, there's a great plug for Supernatural. On the other side of things, though, I was with a few friends last night, not talking about the podcast or anything, but they were talking about Mormonism. Now, these are friends, they've never been Mormon. You know, they don't have really any interest in Mormonism. Apparently, they had a little bit of interest in religion, and they wanted to talk about it. So we were talking a little bit about religion last night. And this other friend of mine, who's older even than I am, says, you know, the thing I really like about Mormons is their emphasis on family and how their family is the most important thing. And I did not take time to go into it with him, but still that impression is out there. And there is some truth to it. I think that you and I both understand that when push comes to shove, really, if there's a contest between members of your family and church leaders, you are always expected to go with church leaders over your family. Every single time. Yes, but... Still, there, there is a positive aspect that people see, non-members, members alike, I'm sure, about the emphasis that the LDS Church does put on families. And I wanted to put that out there on the other side of the coin to try and give some balance, because I know I've been really negative on Elder Oaks, and will continue to be in this episode. But there is a focus on family, and I think the problem is not the focus on the family that the LDS Church has, but the way they do the focus on the family, because the way the eldest church does the focus on the family, at least as evidenced by Elder Oaks talk, is it is so exclusively the one man, one woman with children uh, focus on a family and so exclusive that it ends up doing horrible collateral damage to anybody and everybody who does not fit within that rigid paradigm. Um, and, and I'll say, too... Again, I don't want to get off into the weeds, but I would say too, and maybe we should do an episode on this at some point because I think it'd make for an interesting conversation. But the idea of the family being so healthy in Mormonism compared to the outside world, I think is in large part an illusion and an illusion caused by members of the church feeling an allegiance to the church in such a way that we put on our best face and we say certain words in certain ways. We articulate our beliefs in certain ways to our neighbors to do the same thing as the quote that you pointed out from Supernatural. So as a Mormon, I'm always trying to be a good missionary. I'm always trying to be a good example to my non-member friends and family, my neighbors. And so I am always choosing to hide my authenticity in order to look the part of being the good Mormon so that my neighbors and my friends and family go like, there's something special there. They're different than us. And, and maybe I get one of them to join the church. When in reality, I think within a Mormon family is the same set of problems to the same set of degrees that you find in families outside the church. I agree with you. 
Well, let's just set up this uh, rest of Elder Oaks talk because now he's done all of his groundwork. He has talked about these eternal truths. And by the way, uh, so many of the truths on which he's basing his talk are from the proclamation on the family, like we said last time, that have no basis in any kind of doctrine prior to that. But he keeps calling these statements truths throughout the talk to the point where I wanted to start counting the number of times he says truths, truths, truths over and over again in reference to this with the effort, obviously, of trying to make his audience walk away with the idea, hey, these must be truths. So he set this all up. He set up the plan of salvation. He set up the idea in Mormonism, which is commonly believed in Mormonism, though I don't think it's necessarily related to what Joseph Smith taught, that celestial glory is a man and a woman sealed in the temple with their children and going on to celestial glory and what it is that they do after that. He doesn't talk really about what they do after that, but he says that's what we got to do in order to enjoy the supernal blessing, as he puts it, the supernal blessing of the celestial kingdom. And now that he's set this forth, he finally gets in Roman numeral three. Remember, he loves the Roman numerals. He gets to Roman numeral three, and now he is going to make the points that he has been setting the groundwork in order to make. And he makes one, two, three, four, five, and six different points based upon this groundwork. So that's where we're going to start now. I will now mention some applications of these eternal truths, which can only be understood in light of God's plan. First, we honor individual agency. Most are aware of the restored Church's great efforts to promote religious freedom in the United States and across the world. These efforts do not promote just our own interests, but according to his plan, seek to help all of God's children enjoy freedom to choose. Okay, so this is the first of his six points that he's going to make. And in the first couple of points, really what he's trying to do is talk about how great the church is. So when it comes to the subsequent points where it puts the church in not so great a light, people will hopefully go along with it and think the church is still being great. I always have to laugh when Elder Oaks especially talks about the church's efforts which means mostly his efforts, to quote-unquote promote religious freedom in the United States and across the world. Because really, I've been watching this movement by Elder Oaks and a couple of other general authorities maybe, but it's primarily General, uh, general Oaks, uh, Elder Oaks, who is promoting religious freedom. And he wants people to think, hey, we're promoting religious freedom in the United States, as if somehow religious freedom is under attack in the United States. Number one, it tries to play this victim card, and he's the champion of religious freedom, which needs no championing from him. And what really is going on, as you know, Bill, and as I think most of the listeners know, is that this promotion of religious freedom is really a response to gay marriage and the legalization of gay marriage. The promotion of religious freedom means the religious freedom to discriminate against gay people. That's what this entire program is about. And the comment here, okay, so there's a couple of things. One is uh, when he says, I will now mention some applications of these eternal truths, which can only be understood, I'm sorry, only can be understood only in light of God's plan. What he's saying is that, okay, I'm about to tell you some things that are going to feel a little more maybe abrasive. 
And they the the reason these are true is because of the things I just told you about, which is the plan of salvation in my own articulation, which also doesn't hold up very well, but is only true if you accept my previous statement, which is that secular sciences and information seeking is useless at deciding what is true and what isn't, what holds up and what doesn't. And if you only accept those still small voices inside your body and inside your mind that everybody in the world feels about their religion, but only hold it true to ours, then that makes the next set of statements true, which then allows me to go into the next set of statements, which is why these things make you uncomfortable, because everything points to these not being helpful, uh, pointing to these being unhealthy and harmful to others. Uh, but you, you as Mormons, we all have to accept these as uh, just simply the way things are, the way God operates because of the way I've set up my previous two sections of my talk. Right. And you'll see that really when you look at number one and number two, we've done number one, we'll do number two here in a second. They really don't have any place in this talk other than to try and uh, give a huge pat on the back to the church in front of the audience so that they can see how good the church is, so that they can understand when they get to three and four and five that the church is still being good and has good intentions when it's doing bad things. Yeah, and, and there's a spot here where he says that we um, these efforts do not promote just our own interest, but according to his plan, seek to help all of God's children enjoy freedom to choose. So in that quote is the idea that we're not just helping the church. We're also helping other people in their cause to promote these things as well. And the reality is the church only gets involved if the movement it's encouraging to happen or trying to stop benefits it. Uh, so let's just speak for a moment. Global warming is an issue that's debated back and forth, whether it's real, whether it isn't. I don't want to get into that. But if the church believes that the planet is being threatened, why wouldn't the church get involved with that? If the church were worried about people in certain countries of poverty uh, not having clean water, why wouldn't the church get involved with that? If you look at the things the church gets involved with, the things it puts its money, its time, and its talents towards, it are they are only things that promote inside the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, as we're not supposed to say anymore. It, it promotes something beneficial to the church. The church is not going around as this benevolent entity going like, hey, you know, not only do we want to help us, we want to help other people too. No. The church is only getting involved when it suits their own purposes. And as a side note, it benefits other organizations as well. Yes, and I think that's important. And here we have the same phenomenon that my friend mentioned. We're talking about one paragraph now in Elder Oaks' talk. And we have to go on much longer than the time he took in order to talk about what it is that he's not talking about, those truths he's avoiding in order to manipulate his audience. He wants to present the church's efforts to promote religious freedom as something that is altruistic and applies to everybody across the United States, across the world, he says. And he makes it plain that he says, we want to help all of God's children enjoy freedom to choose. Well, that all sounds nice and fine and everything and wonderful, except that the truth is that the religious freedom they're promoting is the freedom of the LDS church to discriminate against gay people. That's all it is. And that's all it's ever been. So even though he's trying to present it as something that's altruistic and beneficial to all people, it is not. It is something completely centered in the church's own interests. 
Yeah, it has to do entirely with holding their own theology and being able to maintain their own narrative without any kind of disruption. Yes, and number two is going to be the exact same thing in a different area. Second, we are a missionary people. We are sometimes asked why we send missionaries to so many nations, even among Christian populations. We receive the same question about why we give many millions of dollars of humanitarian aid to persons who are not members of our church, and why we do not link this aid to our missionary efforts. We do this because we esteem all mortals as children of God, our brothers and sisters, and we want to share our spiritual and temporal abundance with everyone. Often in Mormonism, we see uh, critics paint the leaders of the church in caricatures. Uh, For instance, Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks as the two guys sitting in the stand of the Muppets. And and I was a big fan of the Muppets growing up, but I I didn't know their names. But the the caricature fits in some ways. Here's Elder Oaks, and, and, and this seems like such a small point. We give so much credit to people like Elder Holland or Elder Uchtdorf, President Monson, for the way they inflect their voice, for the things they say in a talk, the way in which they change their tone, how they uh, know to give certain facial expressions at various points. Elder Oaks does one here. He goes, second, we are a missionary people. We are sometimes asked why we send missionaries to so many nations among even among Christian populations. We receive the same question about why we give millions and millions of dollars of humanitarian aid to persons who are not members of our church and why we do not link this aid to our missionary efforts. So again, the church does everything for a reason. And when it sends its young people out on missions, it's a twofold exercise. One is that sending a 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old, and and again, these missionaries are coming home, especially before the age change, 22, 23, 24 years old, to send these young people out in their formative years on missions binds them to the tribe. It binds them to uh, this system. And so sociologists who study religious mechanisms and religious systems recognize that within high-demand fundamentalist religions, these kinds of mechanisms take place to bind these young people to the system. In Scientology, for instance, you have the Sea Org, where these young people go out and they serve the church for almost no pay for years on end. Um, These mechanisms work. They get people to let go of their individuality and to see the Uh, perpetuation and increasing the benefit of the system they live in as the main goal. They'll sacrifice other things to make that the main goal, number one. Number two is obviously the church wants to bring in more people. It can say it's for the reason of bringing these people into Christ and giving them uh, life-saving ordinances, but let's not also ignore the fact that those are increasing tithing dollars uh, in some ways as well. The, The church also tends to do things for recognition, because it looks good. And so if you look at what the church spends per member, it's actually really small. And so Elder Oaks can say millions and millions of dollars with emphasis. But as has been pointed out earlier, that it's understood, I could be wrong, but it's understood that the church donated $40 million uh, in the last few years, and maybe more in past years, maybe less in past years. But over the last, let's say, decade, $40 bucks a year has been their donation to humanitarian aid in the world. 
That's like a dollar sixty per member. It's not much. It just doesn't mean anything. And, and so when you recognize how small the church is actually spending there and recognize like where they spend their time, where they spend their energy, make sure you put those yellow shirts on. It's a lot of it's about recognition and being seen for what we're doing. And it's not necessarily just because we love our brothers and sisters and we simply want to help. No, absolutely. And I thought it was funny when he says we are sometimes asked why we send missionaries to so many nations, even among Christian populations. And I thought he was going to go into the normal trope after that, you know, about why it is that we do that. But he doesn't answer the question. Instead, that's a straight line. That's a set up line for his next comment, which is the one he really wants to make. We receive the same question about why we give many millions of dollars of humanitarian aid to persons who are not members of our church and why we do not link this aid to our missionary efforts. Well, Bill, that's a lie. Nobody is asking the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints why they give many millions of dollars of humanitarian aid to people who are not members of the church. You know why people don't ask that question, Bill? Because it's a freaking church. That's what people expect a church to do, is to help other people out. So this is just a setup based in something where nobody's asking that question. And the thing that I find interesting is, he says, why we do not link this aid to our missionary efforts well, you hit it when you talked about the yellow shirts. Of course they link it to their missionary efforts. They want those people who are members of the church who show up to help to be advertising the fact that they are from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And sometimes they do it simply by having the shirts on. But it was either last conference or the conference before when President Eyring mentioned this story about the people with the yellow shirts, the angels with the yellow shirts. And one non-member, I think it was in Florida, it's one one of those uh, places that was hit by a, a hurricane, I think, over on the East Coast. And a non-member was telling the story about these yellow-shirted angels who came and like uh, helped out around the house or in the front yard with stuff that had been knocked over. And then after it was over, they all sang a song, something about being a child of God. Do you remember him telling that story, Bill? Yeah, I, I'm familiar. I think you've talked about this in a previous analysis of one of the conference talks. Right, because... When he told that story, I wasn't there, but you know, I had kind of envisioned Mormons helping out. Maybe they got their yellow shirts on to let everybody know they're Mormons and try and get good publicity for the church that way. But no, these people were taking upon themselves not just to get the publicity that way, but after they're done, they stand on the lawn and they sing, I am a child of God. And that's not supposed to be linked to their missionary efforts. That's why I am a little bit skeptical of the statement by Elder Oaks. Another point is that once again, what he does not say, right? He says, we receive the same question about why we give many millions of dollars of humanitarian aid. He does not say, we receive the same question. And this would be true, by the way, about this question. We receive the same question about why we spend billions of dollars on shopping malls. So you can see how he focuses on what it is he wants to focus on. He avoids certain truths. Why? In order to manipulate you. There was another thing. He says, we do this because we esteem all mortals as children of God or brothers and sisters, and we want to share our spiritual and temporal abundance with everyone. Now, that brought a number of thoughts to my mind. First off was the talk from another conference, and we've heard it many times from different general authorities, that if you have to make a choice between paying your light bill and paying your tithing, Bill, what are you supposed to do? I, uh, I think that's pay your tithing. That's what we are taught in general conference by general authorities, yes. And if you have to make a choice between feeding your children 
and paying your tithing. What are you supposed to do, Bill? Uh, the correct answer is pay your tithing. Right. And so here we get to this dichotomy between what it is we want the outside, non-member world to think of us versus the inside world of Mormonism. When it comes to the inside world of Mormonism, the church is not at all about sharing our spiritual and temporal abundance with everyone. Well, one would think that everyone would include the members of the church as well as non-members, right, Bill? And, Bill, I will ask you this question because you used to be a bishop. If you have a person who is down on their luck in your ward and needs some money from the church, can they get that money without showing their obedience and faithfulness and worthiness to the bishop of the church. Yeah, the handbook instructs us as leaders of the church to first have that person go to their family or other loved ones and see if they can get the funds from them first. If that's not possible, then yes, the bishop stands ready to help with also encouragement from the handbook to give that person who's receiving aid uh, assignments and service opportunities to in some way, um, I guess, either show gratitude to the Lord or pay back the system in some other term. Right. So there's all these strings attached to any money being given by the church to members of the church within Mormonism. And yet Elder Oaks is trying to paint a very, very different picture to his audience about how altruistic, how free the church is in giving millions of dollars in humanitarian aid. And of course, I've got to keep thinking about this. You know, in the, the final tally in Heaven Bill, who gets credit for these humanitarian efforts? Because who's giving the money? Well, the members of the church are paying their tithing to the church, and then the leaders of the church are giving millions of dollars of financial aid. And like you said, it's a drop in the bucket compared to their income and assets. They're giving millions of dollars in financial aid over many years, well, it's not their money. It's not the money that belongs to the leaders of the church, right? So I just don't know in the final tally who it is who gets credit for this humanitarian aid. That's just more of a thought exercise than anything so else. So if you give me Does 20 you any- if you give me 20 bucks and then I give 20 bucks to the homeless guy next to me that you just gave me, I don't get the blessing in heaven for that? Well, I don't know. If <laughs> if you get 20 bucks from me because you tell me I've got to give you 20 bucks to get to heaven and then you give it to the homeless guy, I don't know who gets credit for that. Uh, I loved how you pointed out earlier this idea of Elder Oaks pointing out this question. We received the same question about why we give many million. You're right. You're right, RFM. Nobody asked that question. He just did that for the effect of being able to answer a question that he never gets, which I thought was interesting. The other thing is I thought was cool. We're talking about these yellow shirts. Those yellow shirts for years have been doing the work of Satan. Do you know that? Well, these shirts say Mormon helping hands. And any time we use the term Mormon, RFM, we are we are making Satan smile and we are offending God. Where on earth did you get a crazy idea like that? That's that's ridiculous, Phil. What are you talking about? <laughs> well that about? came from that came from Elder Nelson's closing talk at General Conference. Oh crap, I'm sorry. I take it all back. It must be true then. If the prophet of the Lord said it, it's true. No matter how <laughs> so here ridiculous we are. something is, if the prophet right. says it, it's true. Right. Truth, truth, truth. So here we are wearing these yellow shirts with Mormon helping hands on this on this uh, 
this concept, this idea, this logo, this branding that we've worked years to, to make into a positive thing. And now we just have to throw those yellow shirts away. And now it has to say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints helping hands. And by the time you even read the first three or four words, the person's already passed by you to, uh, <laughs> to, to get into your front yard to sing, I am a child of God. We could shorten it um, and we could call it the Tabernacle Helping Hands on Temple Square. The <laughs> tab cats. <laughs> so the other thing, too, is the idea of the church just caring so deeply about the needs of its members and of people in the world, when in reality, I think it's important to note that the church's welfare system works very differently in a place like the United States versus a place in, uh, say, uh, sub-Sahara Africa. So here in the U.S., when I served as a bishop – People would come to me to have car payments made, to have credit card bills paid, to have mortgage payments made. And sometimes you didn't take care of those things. Sometimes you did. You'd have conversations. As a bishop, I would have conversations with my stake president. Some of those things are are swayed away from, like that's really not appropriate. Some of those things are. But what I am telling you is that in the United States, the kinds of needs that are taken care of by the uh, welfare system of the church are much different. They they are not the same kinds of needs that are present in these third world countries. But here's what happens. In the United States, a active tithe paying member who's having a hard time will have their mortgage paid month to month if need be, as long as the both sides are still working in accordance with the handbook to try to get past that tough moment so that that person can take care of themselves. Uh, and I'm not saying that sometimes hard decisions aren't made to cut that financial uh, service off if things are not moving in the right direction or someone's resistant to making whatever changes they need to make financially. But on the other hand, if I go into a third world country, there's an organization called the Liahona Foundation, which seeks to feed primarily starving LDS children. Now, you now the average TBM would go, no way. There's not an active, starving LDS kid who goes to their bishop and is not getting aid. Well, that's not true. In third world countries, the Liahona Foundation serves a LDS population primarily that is not getting welfare funds from the church. So I'm simply pointing out a contradiction, which is uh, in a developed country like America, the system sometimes works too good, where people have wants maybe sometimes taken care of. Uh, and not just needs. On the other hand, if we go into a third world country, there are literally active LDS families whose children are starving and who the bishop looks at them and says, there's nothing I can do in terms of getting you food. And there's reasons for that. And some of those might be okay. And some of those may not be okay. But simply to make the, the listener aware that the system doesn't work so good outside of developed countries and that statements by Elder Oaks don't hold completely true once we get away from those developed countries. So this Liahona Foundation that you mentioned, that is an organization that is part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Bill? I'm glad you asked. No, it's not. It is an outside organization made up of Latter-day Saints. I think it's headed up by, I think one of the board members is Bob Reese, uh, who's who's just a deeply caring uh, man. Uh, Latter-day Saint who saw this problem, put a group of people together. He's one of those and uh, seeks to feed these kids. But while it is uh, connected in identity 
in ways to the LDS Church because it is made up of Latter-day Saints. It is not a church-run organization, and it actually attempts to fill a void that for whatever reason the church is unable to fill in those countries. So what you're saying is that there are starving children who go to bed hungry every night who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that the LDS Church does not distribute funds to ease their suffering, but instead other Mormons on a local level seeing the need get additional donations and investments separate and apart from tithing and fast offerings that go to the church in order to try and help out these hungry children. Is that right? Yeah. And meanwhile, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has $32 billion in the stock market. Elder Oaks, you stand condemned by your own words. Yeah. And and I feel that as well. You want to go to number three. Number three is the shortest of the six. And yet it's just a mind blower. Third, Mortal life is sacred to us. Our commitment to God's plan requires us to oppose abortion and euthanasia. This one sticks out like a sore thumb. Where the heck is Elder Oaks getting this from? What does it have to do with his talk? He's going to actually get to the point of his talk here in number four and five, as you know. But now all of a sudden he wants to talk about abortion and euthanasia. It's not the subject of his talk. He's not going to say anything more about those two things. He's just going to leave it in one sentence. Our commitment to God's plan requires us to oppose abortion and euthanasia. I think what Elder Oaks is trying to do is totally retrench us back several decades in the development of the church and try and once again cement it in a conference talk by himself, who's now a member of the First Presidency, and say that our commitment to God's plan requires us to oppose abortion and euthanasia. Now, I'm not here to talk about the relative merits or of abortion or euthanasia, only to observe there is nothing in any of the scriptures, in any of the standard works, that even talks about abortion, or whether it is a good thing or a bad thing or a sin or not a sin. There is nothing in any of the standard works that talks about euthanasia, or whether that's a good thing or a bad thing or a sin or not a sin. And you will note that he does not try to use any scriptural citations or anything else to support it. It is simply a bald assertion, which I think is meant to, once again, retrench the church, cement it in a, in a general conference talk in hopes that it will keep the church retrenched after Elder Oaks is gone. What is his problem with uh, Asian teenagers anyway? I don't know. Apparently, youth in Europe is okay, but the youth in Asia, he doesn't like the youth in Asia. He's, he's really deeply opposed is, to youth in Asia. This is just one of many examples of Elder Oaks' racism. <laughs> so, <laughs> here's what I think is going on, too. I think the whole point of his talk is to say number four and number five, right? Yes. But... And he's got 15 minutes to fill, so we might as well talk, throw in abortion and euthanasia. Well, I think, too, what he's doing is a um, – it's, it's a common tactic used when you give a talk, which is to build up your audience with some positives first before you dive into the negative. So if I look out at the crowd and I say, look at our young people serving missions. Look at the money we give to take care of people in this world. Uh, look at the fact that we oppose abortion and – and uh, teenagers in Asia. I mean, look at the fact that we do all this good in the world. And every member of the church who's orthodox is shaking their head going, yep, 
Yep, I feel good about that. Yep, I feel good about that. Yep, I feel good about that. And in Mormonism, what are good feelings, RFM? That's the Spirit of God. Yeah, that's the Holy Ghost, the light of Christ, the Spirit of God. It is how you know that things are true. So Elder Oaks is trying to build into his talk people having good feelings and confirming feelings as we discuss, uh, as, a tr- as he discusses these things that most Orthodox members would be proud of and happy about so that he can set up his audience to then go into number four and number five. Right. And note, there's no choice here. There's no choice on the part of members as to whether they're going to oppose abortion or euthanasia because our commitment to God's plan requires us to oppose these things. So we are required to. And if we don't, then obviously we're not committed to God's plan. It's all rhetorical sleight of hand. Can I tell you just a really brief story, Bill, which was interesting about euthanasia? Back in the early 1990s, in the state where I lived, there was, um, well, there was going to be a law passed. I think it was probably a referendum that was on the ballot to legalize euthanasia. And it was a big thing in the church, I remember. But the thing I remember most was a state priesthood meeting was called for all the priesthood members in the state to get together into the stake center. And this was the subject. And we were told how bad it was how wrong it was, euthanasia, and that this is something that was in violation of God's plan. Of course, there's no scriptural reference for it. And one might ask if God is going to put somebody in a position through sickness, illness, cancer, whatever, to where their every second on earth is a living hell, wouldn't it be more merciful in order to allow euthanasia? But once again, I'm not going to get into the merits of it. But in this meeting, we were told to go out and vote against it. And I remember thinking at the time, uh, I'm kind of not feeling comfortable here because I know the church is not supposed to be telling its members how to vote. At least that's what they say openly. And yet, at least within this meeting, it was a very different situation. And I remember that. Yes, I think such things happen quite a bit. I mean, we have out here in Utah right now, we have this issue too that's coming here in November where... The church and the legislation uh, are deeply resistant to legalized medical cannabis. And the people of Utah got their own referendum uh, passed and got this initiative put onto the ballot. The church, in its response to that, has now come out formally and uh, encouraged its members to vote no on issue two. Now, issue two doesn't seem on its surface to be a moral issue. Now, I know we can turn any issue into a moral issue if we want to. But the reality is uh, legalizing or unlegalizing a medicine for people whom doctors write prescriptions saying they need the medicine is not a moral issue. And yet the church here has blatantly crossed a line that it has set in order to uh, get its way. Now, I, we're going to be interested to see what happens. Again, I'm going off into a tangent. Uh, about 70% of Utah was in favor of medical cannabis. The church, when it came out with its statements, obviously it still has some influence. And so that number has gone down to about 60%. But that sounds like it's still going to pass. And actually the church, I think, also believes it's still going to pass because the church has now come out with additional statements where it has softened its rhetoric as if it wants these things to be in place and it's working with legislators to help these things be in place, but it just doesn't like the wording of this specific initiative. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here 
uh, in about another little less than a month um, and what goes on with issue two. But I want to simply say that the church, just as you pointed out, the church likes to tout these rules to keep its tax-exempt status, but it seems on occasion to not have a problem breaking those. Well, I tell you what, it's time for a big drum roll, Bill, because finally we're going to get to the fourth point, which is where which is where Elder Oaks comes out of the closet and says what it is that he's really been dying to say for this entire talk, where he goes down on homosexual marriage, transgender issues, and even he also throws in the um, the good old thing about uh, men's and women's roles and confusing those. So are you ready to play that, Bill? Fourth, some are troubled by some of our church's positions on marriage and children. Our knowledge of God's revealed plan of salvation requires us to oppose current social and legal pressures to retreat from traditional marriage and to make changes that confuse or alter gender or homogenize the differences between men and women. We know that the relationships, identities, and functions of men and women are essential to accomplish God's great plan. I listened to him articulate his fourth concept here in his list of five. What, what my attention is drawn to is this idea. So I'm listening this morning to an interview between Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson is a psychologist. He's a university professor. Uh, he's a brilliant mind. He's very up to date on the data. The data says that men and women are not as different as Mormonism likes to paint. Mormonism says there's men and there's women and men act a certain way and behave a certain way and should be encouraged to do certain things. And women uh, act a certain way, behave a certain way, and should be encouraged to do certain things. The reality is that when you understand the science, which again, the whole reason for Elder Oak's uh, first section was so that I now can't step in and impose the science. Because the science we have to dismiss. We have to disregard it. It doesn't matter what the science says. And yet I would argue with you, the listener, and say that every time Mormonism has had to disavow its teachings or shift away from something it taught in the past is because of secular learning, because of the data, because of the science. So the science tells us, one, that gender is not binary. Gender is not male and female. That's first. If anybody out there is listening and goes like, I, I, I believe in the church, I believe Elder Oaks, then ex simply accept my invitation to go study out the issue and not assume the authorities of your religious system are point on. And, and you shouldn't assume the authorities of your religious system are point on because they've been wrong over and over and over again. Literally, I could sit here for 20 minutes and name 200 times that church leaders have on important issues stated dogmatic stances only to have the current church have um, walked back from those, dismissed those, disavowed those, and changed to represent something that is 180 from those past beliefs. So I would invite you to look at the data, to look at the science. Again, gender is not binary, number one. Number two is that men and women, uh, sociologists, again, the sciences, point out that men and women are not as different as we like to think in Mormonism. The one difference 
that is acknowledged is that men and women have different interests. If you leave men and women alone, men will tend to gravitate, for instance, in careers such as engineering. Women will tend to gravitate towards careers such as nursing uh, or medical fields. And there's reasons for that. Um, m- women uh, tend to be uh, a little bit more caring, which we agree with. Men tend to be a little more aggressive, a little more competitive. But outside of that concept, men and women are actually very much alike. The other thing that um, Jordan Peterson pointed out in this talk I was listening to this morning, this conversation, is that if you take a random man and a random woman, the the differences are so small in the things I just talked about that there's actually a 40% chance that the woman that I pick out randomly will be more competitive and more aggressive than the man I picked out randomly. So the differences are minute. Uh, and those things are important when you start imposing that, hey, I'm a leader in one small, tiny, uh, in some ways, inconsequential religion inside the world that makes up 0.2% of the population if we count all members and 0.07% of the population if we're only talking about active members of the church. And this leader, this authority in the system imposes on you that we're going to disregard all the data. We're going to disregard all the secular learning, all the science. And me as a leader in this small, uh, inconsequential religion, I'm going to impose my beliefs as absolute in the face of the data, simply because I feel good about it. That doesn't make any sense. And so I'm simply suggesting as somebody who's commenting on this talk, that if you go to the data and you allow the data to speak for itself, Elder Oaks is speaking flat out, inaccurate. Um, I don't want to say lies because maybe he believes it, but they're certainly not the truth that he wants to impose them as. Right, and he continues with his rhetorical sleight of hand in the way he presents his information. Notice that all he's doing is making bold assertions. This is called argument by assertion. And what he does is he says, once again, our knowledge of God's revealed plan. In other words, it's true. There's no question about it. It's our knowledge of God's revealed plan of salvation, once again, requires us to oppose current social and legal pressures to retreat from traditional marriage. Now, let's just stop right there. That's not the end of the sentence, but let's stop right there because he does a really long run-on sentence in order to cram a whole lot of things into it that deal with very, very different subjects. The first thing is this. Traditional marriage is a stupid thing for a leader of the Mormon church to be saying, especially one who happens to be currently married to two women in the temple. Traditional marriage is, in the Mormon church, polygamy. It's not just traditional, it's current. And yet, once again, the church wants to present itself as the great champion of 1950s suburban middle-class America, leave it to Beaver, one man, one woman, Ward, and June. So there is a an element here of not really dealing with the background of Mormonism. Because the fact is that if he were to deal with the background of Mormonism and be honest about it, Bill, the fact that Mormonism engaged in a very non-traditional kind of marriage for its first 60, 70 years, and in some sense in the temple continues to do it today, and I'm talking about polygamy, should 
If anything, make the leaders of the LDS Church sympathetic to others who want to practice a non-traditional kind of marriage. But it does not, at least certainly not with Elder Oaks. And so therefore, he has to put himself, uh, just ignore polygamy. We never practice polygamy. We have always been one man and one woman. That's the way God ordained it. And by the way, he also quotes from the proclamation on the family that God ordained marriage. I'm not sure I find that anywhere in the scriptures either. But he says that God has ordained it, one man, one woman. And therefore, our knowledge of the plan of salvation requires us to oppose the current social and legal pressures to retreat from traditional marriage. Now, let me say one other thing about that. That sentence makes no sense. Even granting that what he's saying is true. And let's just say God's plan of salvation, absolutely, it's absolutely 100% true. Why does a knowledge of that require us to oppose current social and legal pressures to retreat from traditional marriage? Now, that's code, of course. He's talking about gay marriage, right? We all know that. Why would a knowledge of God's plan require us to oppose letting people who are homosexual be married? That's an open question for you, Bill, because it's a non sequitur. It does not require us to oppose it. And in fact, by opposing it, what he has done is he has undercut his very first point. First, this is from his talk. Go back and play the tape if you want. First, we honor individual agency. Well, that's just BS. Because if you're opposing current social and legal pressures to retreat from traditional marriage, i.e., if you are opposing gay marriage, what you are doing is you are opposing individual agency, not honoring it. Thoughts, Bill? Yeah. So something comes up, and I'm hoping I can word this right, because I think it's a complex idea that I was just thinking of as you were talking. Um. If we look at the church, again, the church takes up 0.2% of the population, 0.07% of the world's population, if we only count active members. About 6% of the world's population, uh, somewhere between, say, 5 and 8%, most sociologists come down on about 6 with people being born uh, gay or lesbian. You also have another small number who are transgender or some other type of uh, intersex or some other type of... Uh, gender that is outside of the ones that are considered the standard male-female. So in the world's population, 6% of human beings, let's just talk about gay and lesbians for a moment. They're gay and lesbian. The church now agrees that those folks are not uh, choosing that, that they are to some extent biologically driven to be uh, gay or lesbian. The church no longer recommends Mixed orientation marriages where a gay man marries a straight woman. The church now acknowledges that that doesn't end well. The church used to recommend that. Again, another statement by the church and its leaders that it has had to walk back and disavow, even though at the time it knew it was teaching truth in the same way that Elder Oaks thinks he's teaching truth. So in acknowledging that mixed orientation marriages don't work, that LGBT folks are not choosing that lifestyle, at least not for the far and wide majority of them. My question comes down to uh, the idea of there's two options. One is that, and it's two sides of the same coin. One is that if we oppose gay marriage, RFM, does that stop anybody from being gay? No. So if we, if we oppose gay marriage... 
people are still going to be born gay and they're still going to be attracted to people of the opposite sex. And for at least uh, 99.8% of the population, they are going to find somebody of the same gender and they're going to enjoy a happy, uh, connected relationship with another human being. So by opposing gay marriage, you're not affecting anything other than the other side of the coin, which is when you have people who stand up against the rights of other human beings simply because that human being is different, and all you have to do is look at other high-demand fundamentalist religions like Islam, extremist Islam, I should say, I correct that, extremist Islam, and and to some extent, uh, there are other high-demand fundamentalist religions who also take anti-homosexual stances, and even non-high-demand fundamentalist religions, um, at least what we would consider today, such as the evangelical churches or the Southern Baptist churches, when we look at groups of people who oppose the human rights of another human being that they enjoy, that they don't want the other person to enjoy simply because they are different than them, those relationships of the people who oppose those who are different Involve trauma, involve abuse, involve bullying, involve harming, and sometimes even involve someone taking the life of another person, and at the very minimum, some of those who are traumatized taking their own lives. So I'm simply standing back and saying, in the net good of the world, do we have any positive effect on opposing um, same-sex marriage? No. These people are born that way and they're going to choose those relationships anyway because that's who they are. Just like me as a straight male, I'm going to go find a relationship with a woman. I'm a happily married man of 21 years and with my wife because I like females and I've made a connection with her. So we don't do any good. We're not doing any good by opposing same-sex marriage. And in effect, we're actually causing great harm in the world by opposing same-sex marriage. Because we give a stamp of approval, even if our words in other places say otherwise, we're giving a stamp of approval to bigotry, to prejudice, to bullying, and to marginalizing, shaming, and harming other people. Yes, and in this statement, I do want to go on a little bit beyond the gay marriage thing, which he phrases as a retreat from traditional marriage, where obviously he's talking about gay marriage. Because he does go on to talk about Uh, gender alteration, or transgender people, which he refers to as confusing gender. And this is the statement, okay? I just want to read it once more. It's just one sentence, and then I'll make a couple final comments about this one. Number four he has in his list, which is the main one he wants to make. Our knowledge of God's revealed plan of salvation requires us to oppose current social and legal pressures, to retreat from traditional marriage, and to make changes that confuse or alter gender or homogenize the differences between men and women. Now, that goes back to the ERA. That's not a new thing that the church is talking about. But once again, an example of retrenchment back to the kind of talks we were hearing in the 1970s. But here's the thing. First off, let me go on record as saying that I do not believe that this type of attitude toward the marginalized, toward the different in our society is in any way Christ-like. If anything, it is the spirit of Antichrist that Elder Oaks is spouting here. But even if we accept the fact 
that the church of Jesus Christ or any church has the right to believe these things, which we do. I believe that. The problem is, is that what Elder Oaks is saying is not that these are the rules of our church and these are the rules you have to follow in our church. He's saying that our knowledge of God's plan of salvation requires us to oppose these changes for anybody everywhere. In other words, because we are so sure we are right, we have the authority and indeed the responsibility to ensure that everybody else follows our religious tenets, whether it's gay marriage, which of course they lost on famously at the Supreme Court a couple of years ago, or gender alteration, or transgender people, or changing the differences in the roles between men and women. Now, the reason that this is so important is also because this is exactly what Elder Oaks was talking about in his first point. Most are aware of the restored church's great efforts to promote religious freedom in the United States and across the world. That's what he says in his first point. In his fourth point, he reveals what it is that he means by religious freedom, which is the freedom of the LDS Church to impose its religious orthodoxy on everybody else in the United States and across the world. And that is what I object to strenuously. Yeah, and it imposes this with the caveat that we are to dismiss, ignore, and discredit all of the data and the science and all the information and the secular learning in favor of positive feelings felt by 0.07% of the human population about invisible things that no one can verify. Yes. And in number two, when he talks about we want to share our spiritual and temporal abundance with everyone, well, a lot of that temporal abundance has been funneled into political machinations behind the scenes in pretty much every state of the union and in the federal courts over the last several decades in order to fight what was ultimately a losing battle against same-sex marriage. This is crazy. So let's use an analogy. If you told me that putting a knife in someone's chest will cause them to die. That's a fact. As a piece of data. We have medical science to back that up. We have what we see. We can see that that happens. And then I tell you, no, a flying spaghetti monster um, visited me in vision in a dream. And the flying spaghetti monster said that I have the magic power to stab people and they will look dead. But after five years, they'll rise from the dead. Um, and I want to test my theory out. Everyone would say you're a moron and they would lock me up in a straitjacket in a rubber room. And here's what Elder Oaks is doing. It's the same thing. He's saying that, look, we held a very, very minute, small view in the world and we base our view on feelings in spite of all the data running counter to what we're saying. And yet we reserve the right to impose that on others, even though we are now seeing that more data comes in saying that we are causing great harm to the people that we inflict these magical feeling views on. That is absurd. It is crazy talk. Here's another thing that needs to be noted. When we talk about transgender folks, again, we have created a social construct in this world that is binary. Again, the world generally, Elder Oaks isn't, this didn't originate with Mormonism. The world works in binary terms. We've created a social world of male and female. We have not provided safe spaces 
For anything outside that binary construct, we're getting better at it. It's moving that direction. But if somebody is born with a female body and their brain is a male brain, their their brain is telling them that I am male at my core, we don't have the safe spaces to uh, help that person find a way to fit into the world. We haven't done that yet. We're Again, we're getting there, but it's going to take us another 100, 300, 500 years to do it. And I hope it doesn't take that long. These folks are already struggling with being authentic. They're already struggling with self-esteem because they look in the mirror every day and they're not happy with what they see. And again, we as a world haven't provided any way to have a conversation. If the world was created in such a way that it was just understood that gender was all along a spectrum and all of us fit into whatever whatever grouping that we felt we fit into, that there was safe spaces for those groupings, this wouldn't be as much of an issue. What we find is that transgender folks are highly suicidal, highly. I think the numbers are around 70 to 80% of folks who identify as transgender have suicidal ideology and about 40%, I think, is the number of those who actually attempt suicide. That is so high. And that is saddening. Here's what makes it worse. If those people, if those who are transgender have people around them who validate them and who allow them to be authentic, those numbers drop significantly. What Elder Oaks is doing is the opposite. He is, a not, he is not allowing them to be authentic. He is not giving them any validation. In fact, he is demanding they be inauthentic. He's demanding that he impose his view that they're only confused and that there's no place in the world for them to be authentic about this thing they're experiencing. And what Elder Oaks is doing is driving up the suicide ideology and the attempts of suicide on this segment of our society. Yes, well put, Bill. Are you ready to go on to number five? Because here's where he hits children and the Mormon women need to have more of them earlier. Do you you see, though, I just want to say before we get to that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you see, though, if we just dive into the data and if we just understand the actual life experience of these human beings, Mm -hmm. that we can recognize that these folks need some care. They need some concern and some compassion and some understanding from us. So earlier in the talk, Elder Oak says... Like there's all those people who just focus on secular learning and they don't make any room for faith and damn them. What I would say, and this may come off strong, but Elder Oaks, you've set aside all of that secular learning, all of that data and that science. And so you're only relying on these feelings inside you, these, these, and I'm going to call them make-believe feelings because Mormonism has shown itself to be wrong over and over and over again. And the harm you're causing Elder Oaks, I say, damn you. Now let's go to the audio. Fifth, we also have a distinctive perspective on children. We look on the bearing and nurturing of children as part of God's plan and a joyful and sacred duty of those given the power to participate in it. In our view, the ultimate treasures on earth and in heaven are our children and our posterity. Therefore, we must teach and contend for principles and practices that provide the best conditions for the development and happiness of children, all children. Okay, three comments on this section. First is, he doesn't come out and say that the Mormon women need to be having more kids 
at an earlier age. He implies it, but he'll come out and say it in the women's general session later that same night when he speaks to them. And you should go to that because that's like part two of this section of his talk where he tells the young women of the church, we love you and we need you to be having more Mormon babies earlier. Children are our most precious gift from God, our eternal increase. Yet we live in a time when many women wish to have no part in the bearing and nurturing of children. Many young adults delay marriage until temporal needs are satisfied. The average age of our church members' marriages has increased by more than two years, and the number of births to church members is falling. Each of these trends works against our Father's divine plan of salvation. Latter-day Saint women understand that being a mother is their highest priority, their ultimate joy. Oh, by the way, the talk that he gives to the uh, general women's session as well, if you look at it online, it's also divided up into Roman numerals because that is the mark of the beast. Here he, <laughs> here we come into uh, just a couple of comments here, right? Okay, first is this. We look on the bearing and nurturing of children as part of God's plan and a joyful and sacred duty of those given the power to participate in it. Now, that's very interesting because what he's talking about there is women or their husbands, but women who are infertile, husbands who are infertile and trying to recognize, you know, we've got these people who are heterosexual and they can have sex all they want, but they're not going to produce any kids. So he recognizes that. He doesn't say anything more about it. And it's a good thing he doesn't say anything more about it because that entire fact of infertile heterosexual couples undermines his argument against gay marriage. Gay marriages cannot produce, uh, at least not naturally, children. And yet he's opposed to them because, well, that's what marriage is supposed to be. Remember, he set this whole thing up about God's plan of salvation. And this is a man and a woman, and they get married in the temple, and they have kids here, and they go on to the celestial kingdom, and they have kids forever. They have the eternal posterity. That is why it is that that's God's plan. And yet, here he acknowledges, even though just tacitly and just in passing, that there are men and women who are heterosexual who can't have children. So the problem, of course, is, is that if you have men and women who can't have children, and if having children is the whole point of God's plan, on what basis do you distinguish that logically from homosexual people who get married and can't have children? Do you have any thoughts about that, Bill? Um, maybe just a, a, maybe like one step away from that, which is that if we understand, again, the science, which we're now, again, supposed to dismiss because it doesn't have any credibility, the science says, again, 6% of the human population is born as gay or lesbian. So it's not like gay sex is so appealing. Gay intercourse is so incredibly appealing that all of us straight people are going to go like, wow, I guess they're legalizing that. Maybe I'll take up gay sex. No, that's not what happens. So Elder Oaks is making this argument that the reason we need to oppose same-sex marriage or people acting out on their attraction – of being attracted to the same gender is because families and children are so important. 
The same number of straight people will get married or have relationships. The same number of straight people will have children. The number of children in the world doesn't go down because we let gay people have gay sex. That doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. In other words, if we lived in a world where gay people were just as human and just as validated as humans as the rest of us, there would be no difference in the number of children born to heterosexual couples, which is still going to be at 94%, unless evolution decides to do something different. That's point one. Point two is that if you study the science and the data, which Elder Oaks, again, doesn't want us to do, the reality is that in families where a, where a person is born gay or lesbian, we don't quite understand the science of this yet. If a man is born gay, his brothers and his sisters will have more children. It's a evolutionary piece of data that comes out. So in families with a gay family member, that family actually has more posterity than a family with no gay family member. And so again, we don't know exactly what's going on in the biology, but there is some countermeasure that takes place in the mother giving birth to those children that makes the other children more fertile. Um, and I think once we understand that, we recognize that what Elder Oaks is pointing to has no data backing at all. And it not only, again, is is inaccurate and false, it's also abusive. Yeah, one could conclude that he being uh, an intelligent man, presumably, he would realize what you're saying is obviously true and that the goal is not so much what you're saying, but rather to keep people who are gay closeted so that it can appear that there are not as many gay people in the world. The one last thing I wanted to mention is that, of course, Sam Young has been in the news with his opposition to church interviews involving sexually explicit questions of grown, unrelated men to children behind closed doors. I think we all know about that. We'd have to have been under a rock for the last several months not to know about that. And here is what Elder Oaks has to say in response to Sam Young. It is clear as day to me who he's talking about. And why it is that he's making this defense of the church against Sam Young's allegation. It's the last sentence of that paragraph. Therefore, we must teach and contend for principles and practices that provide the best conditions for the development and happiness of children, all children. Once again, going to we have the gold standard when it comes to protecting children in the church when really we don't. And I cannot help but read that and see Sam Young written all over it. I, I also think something else is happening here. When he says children and then pauses for a brief moment and then says all children, I would love to pose the question to Elder Oaks. And I think the members of the church and those outside the church, those both orthodox as well as those who are more liberal or more critical of the church, would be appalled at his response. But I'd like to ask Elder Oaks the question that if a mechanism used by an institution deeply abuses one out of every hundred children, deeply abuses them, but that the other 99 get a net benefit from it, is it okay if we implement that mechanism? And I would be interested to see what his answer would be because I feel like what he's saying there is that we don't just have a responsibility as a church for, for the children. We have a responsibility for all children, meaning that if the net good of the whole is worth hurting the one, 
then that's okay if we do that mechanism. But as you and I both know, that would be very contrary to the words of Jesus, who asked us to leave the 99 and go find the one, who told us that even if we harm one of these little ones, that we should have a millstone tied around our neck and we should be cast into the sea. Well, I want to go back to that one last sentence because I'm not sure I said it in strong enough terms. Okay, so let me do that in 60 seconds. We have a situation in the church where they have these interviews with sexually explicit questions of children. We all know what I'm talking about. We have Sam Young, who has brought national attention to this practice by the church, which is damaging. And all the hundreds of stories that he has presented in hard copy form to all 15 of the top leaders of the church and found out that for his troubles, the church was not interested in changing. Instead, the church was more interested in excommunicating Sam Young and silencing him. And at the same time, as he's parked across the street from the church office building, asking the apostles to come down and talk to him about the issue, the church is busy not talking to him, not changing that, not trying to protect the children of the church, but instead they're busy issuing the latest revelation from God is that he really wants the Mormon church not to be called the Mormon church anymore. This is the disconnect that we have. This is the uh, firmly entrenched position of the church that they're not going to change any of their policies or practices, even if it's demonstrably abusive and demonstrably wrong to do so and ask these sexually explicit questions of children behind closed door. And in light of that, I am calling total BS on what Elder Oaks says here when he says, therefore, we must teach and contend for principles and practices that provide the best conditions for the development and happiness of children. Well, if you really think that way, Elder Oaks, that you must contend for them, why don't you? All you have to do is change the practices. But you're up there saying, oh, we're the champions of children, when that is nothing but a lie. When I look at the number of churches who allow one-on-one -on -one interviews between a young child and an adult who is unrelated to them, who's a stranger essentially, right? If you're a seven-year-old in the church, you don't know who this bishop is. You have no clue who that guy is as you're going in for a baptismal interview. Even as you move up in the ranks of the Aaronic priesthood or young women's as a, as a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, uh, you don't necessarily know this man. And so you sit down in this one-on-one -on -one interview. That rarely happens today. We all recognize in the world that that's an unhealthy dynamic. And so most churches have rid themselves of that. Now, of those who are remaining, it's less than a handful. And of those who are remaining, I bet we're the only one who that leader is completely untrained. That leader is just a lay guy. He's just the mailman. He's just the plumber. He's just the electrician. He's just the engineer. He's not been trained as a clergy member to understand ethics, to understand safe boundaries, to understand how to talk and not talk in abusive ways or non-abusive ways. This is just your neighborhood fellow uh, friend, maybe down the street, and maybe it's somebody you don't even know, but he's not skilled or trained or prepared to act in safe ways, knowing what is safe and what is unsafe. I served as a bishop. I said things wrong. I did things wrong. I know other bishops who had this, who had social skills much less than I did, who seemed unable to perceive when they had said things that could cause offense 
and we're setting up boundaries where abuse could occur. I've seen it happen with my own two eyes. This church has mechanisms in place that almost no other church has when you consider both one-on-one interviews as well as an untrained lay ministry. I agree. So going to number six, where he says, finally, finally is number six. This is actually the one where he segues from children into talking to the audience about how the Mormons need to be marrying younger and having more kids. He goes into this more fully in the general conference women's session that night where he states the the statistics. Oh, by the way, okay, he goes into the statistics about how people generally are marrying at two years older than they used to and how people generally are having fewer children. And he says this is a cause of concern because it enters into the church. The reason I started laughing about statistics is because when statistics help make Elder Oak's point, science will be quoted and the statistics will be quoted and used by him. So in that way, what he says to the women that evening in general conference is completely different from what he's saying that morning, Saturday morning, the talk we're talking about in general conference where, hey, science doesn't matter. Science doesn't count. You know, it's completely the spiritual knowledge. That's the important thing. So science doesn't count when he doesn't want it to count, and science does count when he wants it to count. But regardless, here we get to this last paragraph, or at least where he's making his final point, where he will go all in about how women need to start having more Mormon babies uh, from an earlier age. Finally, we are beloved children of a Heavenly Father who has taught us that maleness and femaleness Marriage between a man and a woman and the bearing and nurturing of children are all essential to his great plan of happiness. Our positions on these fundamentals frequently provoke opposition to the church. We consider that inevitable. Opposition is part of the plan, and Satan's most strenuous opposition is directed at whatever is most important to God's plan. He seeks to destroy God's work. His prime methods are to discredit the Savior and his divine authority, to erase the effects of the atonement of Jesus Christ, to discourage repentance, to counterfeit revelation, and to contradict individual accountability. He also seeks to confuse gender, to distort marriage, and to discourage childbearing, especially by parents who will raise children in truth. Just two things here. So he talks about maleness and femaleness. Um, again, that's a binary, uh, ethnocentric perspective. It, it no longer holds up. In 2018, if we allow people to listen to the data, the science, it doesn't work. Gender is not that simple. It's not male and female. I understand the scripture said that. I understand that if we paint a picture where 6,000 years ago, Adam and Eve were in a garden in Missouri and they left the garden and God ordained male and female and and it was not good for man to be alone. And so man and woman, that's just not the reality. The reality is we have an evolutionary process. We have an earth that's billions of years old and that if there was an Adam and Eve, it's so long ago and it is a complicated conversation about um, what Adam and Eve looked like, what were they. It just doesn't mesh The reality is these stories were missed. And I say that because it's important. Here's why. If we accept the science, which Elder Oaks doesn't want us to, that evolution has worked over such a long time period 
And gender is across a spectrum. And yes, 91%, 92% of human beings generally would self-label themselves as male or female. But what happens is in a society that creates its own social constructs is that we always create constructs around the majority. So for instance, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see this persecution of left-handed people. The left hand is a dirty hand. Left-handed people are seen as less than in the Old Testament. We didn't create a safe space for this minority. Um, Whether it's a tribe, whether there are certain ethnic groups who are superior and other ethnic groups who are inferior, the reality is that there are lots of what we would call expressions of gender. So there's male, there's female, there's other expressions of gender um, that include transgender, that include intersex, that include other things going on. And so when we make space for the science that gender is not binary, then we recognize that Elder Oaks is simply speaking on something that just isn't going to hold true. It's never going to change, guys. It's moving a certain direction. We're not going to realize 100 years from now, like, oh, we were wrong. It was just male and female. That's not happening. The science is moving us to accepting as a society, as well as as a world population, that gender is not binary. Elder Oaks' ideas are going to be ancient, and they're going to be seen as so blatantly false false as time goes on. They already are by informed people in the world, but they're going to be seen as false by active believing members of the church in 20 or 30 years. It's nonsense. That's number one. Number two is marriage between a man and a woman. Again, in a binary system, maybe you can say that, um, but it doesn't work that way. So it's not just saying like, here's a gay person and we don't want them to have gay sex. Like, how are we going to deal with a person who has both a penis and a vagina? Which one do they marry? Because it's not a man marrying a woman. It's not that clear cut. And so Elder Oaks has allowed no room for the absolutely evident things we see expressed in the world. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There are people who have both a penis and a vagina. So Elder Oaks has made no space in that statement for how that person fits into God's plan of salvation. Uh, Again, going back to Jordan Peterson in the conversation I was listening to this morning, Mr. Peterson agrees that if you have a polygamous society, that it almost always ends with ultraviolence. And we can see that even in Mormonism. Early Mormonism, Brigham Young's Mormonism out in Utah, there's a lot of violence going on. Polygamous societies tend to be violent because the few men at the top take all the women. Um, They're treated in some ways as property. And the other men are left with no access to a relationship. And these men at the top um, have all all the rewards, in a sense, as they see the women as property. And the system doesn't work. So Mr. Peterson talks about how we have to have an imposed monogamy. And the reason I say that is because I think the church would have a valid point if it could shift to a place where it says, that God is in favor of one human being being in a connected relationship with another human being with fidelity, and that that is what God deems to be the best, uh, most appropriate setup for our society and for his sons and daughters. And I think the church would have fair ground to make that argument. 
But what the church does is it says it needs to have one male because 50% of the population is a male with a penis and one female because 50% of the population is a female with a vagina and that these two need to get married, this one male and this one female. And the reality is that we can just look. If you just sit in a delivery room and watch a thousand babies be born, you realize that that dichotomy doesn't hold up. There's no space for the minority. And we can deem that the minority is so small, the hell with them. Screw them. Who gives a shit? We can throw them under the bus because it's only a few percent. But at the same time, if we have a loving Heavenly Father who loves his children, and there's no space in the plan of salvation for 6%, 8%, 5%, whatever it is, of his sons and daughters, and again, even that statement is binary, for his children, then the plan of salvation is an utter failure. Well put. I just want to make a couple of comments of my own about this paragraph, this point number six, where he says, finally, the first thing is to point out that he is very clear here. Sometimes there's a question among members of the church. Well, does it say marriage between a man and woman or marriage between man and woman? In other words, some kind of wiggle room that can hold out the idea of polygamy is what's being talked about and defended. He's very clear marriage between a man and a woman is essential to God's great plan of happiness. That's the first line he says in this part. But at the very end, it's also interesting. He says that Satan seeks to distort marriage. So is polygamy, is polygamy a distortion of marriage? Based upon his definition, Elder Oak's definition, polygamy is a distortion of marriage, which he defines as marriage between a man and a woman. So that's something that's completely disconnected from the history of Mormonism. It's completely disconnected from the reality, even of Elder Oak's own current life, where he is married in the temple to two women for time and eternity. And so I just wanted to bring that part up, where it's also completely hypocritical for him as a Mormon to define marriage that way, to say that Satan seeks to distort marriage and not to go to the obvious conclusion that if Satan is seeking to distort marriage by being behind gay marriage, then Satan was also seeking to distort marriage by telling Joseph Smith and Brigham Young to practice polygamy. So that was the first point. The second point has to do with his mention of opposition. Here comes the victim card. He brought up opposition earlier in his talk, but it was only so that he could tie it in here. He says, Our positions on these fundamentals frequently provoke opposition to the church. Well, yeah, that's the problem. It also frequently provokes a lot of members to leave the church, Elder Oaks, which he knows darn good and well. He goes on, we consider that inevitable. Opposition is part of the plan. And Satan's most strenuous opposition is directed at whatever is most important to God's plan. So being against gay marriage and all these other things that he's listed are most important to God's plan. This is the most important stuff here, Bill. And the reason we know that is because the opposition to it is the greatest. And who is behind that opposition? I don't know. Could it be? Could it be? That's exactly who's behind the opposition. But the reason that I go into this is not just to make fun of it, because I think it's certainly mockable, but to point out that this argument carries no weight. Because if you're going to say that opposition to a church's teaching shows that it's true, which is what he's saying here, then you could apply that to any crazy thing that a church does that provokes opposition. For example... 
If a church, let's just say the LDS church, since that's the one we're talking about, if the LDS church decided that an ordinance of salvation was on every full moon collecting up every stray cat in the neighborhood and nailing them to an oak tree, okay, that's our religious practice. And then, hey, people are finding out about this. Guess what? There's a lot of opposition to this practice, Bill. Well, you know what that opposition proves? It proves that uh, that the world is in the wrong, and it's it's a sad and a dark and dreary world, and that we are in the right for nailing the cats to the oak tree. Right. In his words, it shows that this is the most important part of God's plan, and that's why Satan is fomenting all this strenuous opposition against it. So I bring that up because it's a crazy example, right? It's bad logic. It's bad logic because any church can create opposition to itself by doing things that deserve to be opposed. But doing that doesn't suddenly make what it is that they're doing true because it promotes opposition. Look at extremist Islam. They strap bombs on their chest and they walk into public spheres in the public arena, blow themselves up, killing lots of people, brought down the trade towers uh, on 9-11. And because we have opposition to extremist Islam, that must mean that these guys have the truth on their side. Elder Oaks just proved it. Yeah, it's nonsense. Yes. Now, I've got a question for you, Bill. Uh, there's still a, quite a bit to go through. And, um, you know, he, he makes his main points here. And then he follows up with a few concluding remarks. And I just wanted to talk about like three of those instead of playing the entire audio. We could let the audience go back and listen to it if they want. But I just wanted to quote for myself and make some comments about three of those and then wrap it up. What do you think? Let's do it. This thing has gone on, I think, uh, far enough for the listener to get the point that Elder Oaks is full of it. Okay, really good. So I'll just make the comments that I want to make, okay? First is, he quotes Elder Neil Maxwell. Oh, by the way, this is under Roman numeral number four for the audience, if they're following along. He quotes Elder Neil Maxwell saying, Don't be among those who would rather try to change the church than to change themselves. Well, that in a nutshell is everything that's wrong with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in my opinion, Bill. The church is never wrong. The church cannot be wrong. Everything the church does is right. And if you think there's a problem with the church, you're wrong. The problem is with you. And you need to repent, which is what he says. You need to repent. And also, you need to seek help. I'm serious. Play the tape for yourselves. That's what he goes on and says to those who are having trouble understanding how perfect the church is and how right they are to take these positions that cause all this opposition. He says, quote, finally, seek help, unquote, because there's something wrong with you. One other comment that I had was he also quotes Elder Jeffrey Holland. You see, this is the point in the program where the general authorities quote each other. And here it's like saying, uh, this is really, really a dumbass statement. But I'm not the only person who's made this dumbass statement. So if there are two of us who make this dumbass statement, it must be true. He did that with Neil Maxwell. Now he's going to do it with Elder Jeffrey Holland, whom he quotes as saying, Hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. In this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know. Now, the reason I think that is a dumb statement and not a particularly convincing argument, especially this last part, in this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know, is because 
the exact opposite is also true. Out of this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know. And in fact, I think it is more correct to say that once you are out of the LDS church, what you know and what you have learned will always trump what you do not know. Any comments about that so far, Bill? Just uh, the comment, those who would rather try to change the church than to change themselves. He speaks as if like the church isn't the people, right? Like there's this machine and you can either change the machine or change yourself to become more like Jesus. And the reality is that's not – that's a fallacy. I know it sounds kind of fluffy on the surface to the TBM, but the reality is the church is the people. So if people within the church push for the church to be healthier, to be better, to treat each other better, to make changes so that we are kinder and more Christ-like to each other, we did change ourselves collectively. Well, that's pretty much all I have to say about this talk, except at the end, the final paragraph, he does a couple of things. Once again, he says for like the 10th time uh, about how what he's taught is true. He actually says, I solemnly testify that the things I have said are true. So that's like the 10th time he said these things are true. Hopefully getting that subliminal message across to his audience. Hey, this is the truth and you need to believe it and accept it as true. And then he says they are made possible by the teachings and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Yes, this message of bigotry has been brought to you by the atonement of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine that Jesus Christ, the one who reached out to the marginalized, the one who reached out to those who were cast aside by the religious leaders of his day, would really support being invoked as a proponent and an advocate of the message that Elder Oaks is proposing. And not just Jesus Christ, but also his Father, who makes it all possible under the great plan of God, our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the end of his talk. I think that it will go down in the history of General Conference as one of the worst talks ever given in General Conference, at least in my book. I I think two things. One is that I find it abusive, but I chuckle a little bit because there's a little bit of humor in the fact that he did this. He goes through the entire talk, taking people who don't fit the mold of what it means to be a worthy, active, fully belonging Latter-day Saint, and he steps on them, spits on their face, smacks them across the face, all through his talk. He does things that actually are going to lead to people feeling worse about themselves and perhaps even causing harm to themselves. And then at the end, he says, finally, seek help. Our church leaders love you and seek spiritual guidance to help you. Like, that's the sign of an abuser. When somebody terrorizes you and then sets themselves up as the person to go and ask for help from, that's an abuser, number one. Number two, finally, for me, the last thing I would like to, to just kind of impart is that if I take all the things that Elder Oaks has done on this issue of homosexuality, his 1984 paper, the proclamation whatever role he played in that, and the talks that he's given over the course of his time as an apostle on this issue, my gut tells me that in some future date, there's going to be a new gospel topic essay, and the majority of that essay will be spent having to walk back and disavow the very type of rhetoric and articulation that Elder Oaks has given in talks like today. 
Well, I think we've pretty much gone through this talk. It only took us about four hours, but I, I hope the audience enjoys it. I think it was time well spent. If we end up beating a dead horse, feel free to play us at a little faster than the normal rate. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real signing off the air. Thank you.